Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 141, Strange Brew, Des Moines' fastest-growing Packer, Bucks, Badger, Brewer Podcast. Hey, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. The numbers are up again. They're up. There's more. There are more Des Moinesians? Des Moinesians? Des Moines? <laughs> Listening again. And yet, not a single email, no explanation of why that is happening. We have a lot of stuff to go over today. NBA trade deadline. Bucks make a move. I would say it was a decent move. Nobody in the NBA, by my measure, went over the top or went all in. Maybe the Knicks out of everybody did the most at the deadline by getting Bogdanovich out of Detroit. But it was a solid move, and I think an okay trade deadline for the Bucks. They're just going to have to go with what they've got. They looked rough against Minnesota last night. We'll break that down. We'll talk some college basketball. Badger basketball, you could smell that one a mile away. Now, that was a trap game. The Nebraska game was not a trap game. The Michigan game against last place Michigan, losers of 10 of their last 11 Michigan. Jawan Howard on the hot seat Michigan. Losing that game was a rough look. They'll try to get back on track on Saturday at Rutgers. It's National Marquette Day, the world's most famous made-up holiday. That'll be on Saturday as well as the Golden Eagles will take on Rick Pitino and St. John's. We'll break that down. Brewers make another move to bring in a backup catcher slash DH. Could this be the first move of a couple of moves where you get a two-time Cy Young Award winner? Bear with me. Let me live. We'll break all of that down. We'll choose your own adventure. Brewer offseason discussion. And, of course, I've got a sheet of 62 prop bets for the Super Bowl. We're going to go through them all one by one, painstakingly at the end of the podcast. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's incomplete, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. On a tentacle foul, throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, I have no idea what's going on with those Iowa numbers. And now I feel like the people that are listening in Iowa are encouraging other Iowans to listen. But nobody's telling me why. Nobody's emailing me, as I so politely have asked you to do in the last couple of weeks. I'm afraid we're going to have to up it to a demand. I'm afraid we are going to now have to demand that somebody in Iowa emails me, john.hensler at mwcradio.com. The hotmail is jhens141. Is that easier? J-H-E-N-S-141 at hotmail.com, at aol.com, at hotmail.com. I'm afraid now I'm going to have to demand somebody from Iowa let me know what's going on there and why this podcast is catching on in Iowa. Because if nobody says anything to me, we're going to start doing episode by episode. We're going to start breaking down every single one of Fran McCaffrey's NCAA tournament failures in depth. We're going to do a deep dive into every single failure that's been going on under his regime at Iowa. 
You have 24 hours. <laughs> you have 24 hours to respond, or episode 142 is starting with that. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. I wish I did. I really, truly wish I did know what was happening there. Let's start. What do I have on the rundown here? I think we'll end with prop bets and Super Bowl conversation. Let's start with the Bucks. Trade deadline was yesterday. Always entertaining. The NBA trade deadline does it unlike any other. I'd put the NBA trade deadline as number one. Baseball's not far behind. The baseball trade deadline is always entertaining, too. But the Woj bombs and all the rumors the night before, they just do it right. They do it the best out of any of the professional sports leagues. That happened yesterday. Like we said off the top, though, I don't think anybody did anything extravagant. The Knicks went and got Boyan Bogdanovich, one of the 17 different Bogdanoviches in the NBA. He was dying in Detroit, averaging 20 points a game. Very good shooter, not a very good defender. But the Knicks have good defenders, and Tom Thibodeau is a very good defensive coach. They get Bogdanovich, and I think that's probably the biggest move that anybody made. The Bucks make one move. It was sort of on the fringes, but it does remind me of the P.J. Tucker. We got dogs, Milwaukee. They just don't know how to be dogs, and we're going to be dogs. And our dogs is crazy. We got dogs, you hear me? Milwaukee, we dogs. Did they get their P.J. Tucker, their 2021 P.J. Tucker? That is both the easiest and the most referenced note after that trade was made that, oh, this guy is like P.J. Tucker because he is very similar. Not as tall as P.J. I think P.J. is 6'6", 6'7", as a forward. Patrick Beverly, who they got from Philly, is 6'3", 6'4", more of a guard. But their mentality and their calling card are exactly the same. Patrick Beverly is a tenacious defender, sometimes too tenacious and sometimes too over the top. He is a guy, though, that gives you strength on that side of the ball where the Bucs need it. We talked about it on the podcast leading into the trade deadline. There are a lot of things you would have liked to see the Bucs get, but number one on the list was a defender, a wing defender, and Beverly sort of fits that mold. He's a guy who can defend guards. You'd prefer him on guards, but if you had to throw him on a small forward or in a bad situation on a power forward where he's going to be outsized by six or seven inches, but he is that kind of a defender, a lot like P.J. Tucker, that you can throw on just about anybody and know that he's going to give you a good effort. The other nice thing with Patrick Beverly is that Doc Rivers is familiar with him. They both spent time together in L.A. I think when they asked Doc about Beverly at the end of the game last night, at the end of the Timberwolves game, he did acknowledge that Beverly gives you a good edge defensively. Sometimes he can take it too far, and that's when Doc said it's my responsibility to rein him in, but he knows him. And when you have a unique personality like Patrick Beverly, you have to have a coach who is at least in line with Pat Bev's idiosyncrasies and knows, like Doc said, how to rein him in a bit. Beverly has one of the most popular sports podcasts out there, not in Iowa maybe. I don't know how they're doing in Des Moines. He is on the Barstool Sports Network. It's the Pat Bevbot pod, and that's the person that broke the news yesterday. Patrick Beverly broke his own news of being traded before Woj did, before Shams did, because I'm sure his agent called him and told him he's on the way. That was the first Twitter account that had the Patrick Beverly to Milwaukee news. He is 35 years old, but that was a lot like PJ when PJ came to Milwaukee in 2021. I think he was the exact same age, sort of toward the tail end of his career. Doesn't score a ton. At times, he has averaged double digits in his career, 10 or 11 points per game. He's at the six-point-per-game, three-rebound-per-game range, which, again, is very similar to P.J. in 2021. But you're picking up Patrick Beverly because he's got a little bit of an attitude. 
He is not afraid to challenge the other team's best wing or best guard, a lot like P.J., and he hopefully is going to enhance that defense and give you more depth off the bench. The bench has been an issue for the Bucks. Hopefully it bolsters that as well. You're not picking up Pat Bev to give you 10 points or 15 points off the bench. You want his charisma to an extent, and you want him to be locked in on the other team's best guard or the other team's best wing with Giannis interchangeably mixed in there. I think I like the move overall, though. Overall, you hope this is going to be a net gain for the bench and for the defense. Now, Patrick Beverly, a lot like P.J., is a guy that you love if he's on your team and hate if he's on the team you are playing. He also is the kind of guy you might hate when he's on your team, too. And we had some of that with P.J., too. Remember, P.J. in the regular season... Some of his act was a little tiring, I think, in that 2021 season when they were at the end of the regular season, scuffling a little bit heading into the playoffs. P.J. really made himself into a cult figure in Milwaukee by the way that he handled himself in the playoffs. So he is one of those guys. Patrick Beverly is one of those guys. You love if he's on your team. You hate if he's against you. And you might even hate him a little bit when he's on your team. That's a part of it, too. That is the biggest move the Bucks made. They also do trade Robin Lopez to the Kings for cash considerations. I think what happened here, and we talked about this, I want to say, on the Monday podcast, Doc Rivers is one of those old-school coaches who is just not going to play his young guys. Even in the blowout last night, he played A.J. Green. We're going to talk more about A.J. Green in a second. He did play him, but he didn't play Andre Jackson Jr. until the second half last night, and he didn't play Marjan until the final five minutes of the game, and the game had been pretty much decided by the early third quarter on. He's just one of those guys, who, like Bud, who is just not going to play younger guys if he doesn't have to. He relies on his veterans. He always leans into experience if that's an option. Robin Lopez does have experience, 14 years in the league. And we saw with Brooke out for personal reasons the past couple of days and even off the bench, he was actually playing Robin. Adrian Griffin was not playing Robin really until the last minute or, or two of a blowout game, which is where he belongs. We talked about that on Monday. When you watch him, it's not like he was in 2019, 2020, the last time he was here, where he did still have some spring in his step. And he was kind of a serviceable defender and was hitting threes in the corner and doing the T celebration. But that was four or five years ago now. You could just tell when he was on the floor, his body was not moving the way he wanted it to. He was very slow, a lot of turnovers, didn't quite seem to understand the system. Not that he had to as the 15th man off the bench. But Doc was playing him because he will play veterans. He will always play veterans over younger players. I think what John Horst did was he child-proofed the lineup. I think he put whatever you put in those outlets when you have a kid and you have to child-proof the house. I think what John Horst did was he saw a kid with a scissors, and that scissors name was Robin Lopez, and he said, boy, that kid probably shouldn't have that scissors. Let's just take that scissors away and throw it in the trash and then put it outside, and he can never find the scissors again. I think that's why they traded Robin Lopez. Had it still been a situation like with Adrian Griffin where they were not playing Robin Lopez, maybe he sticks on the team. But the fact that he was giving him significant minutes, I mean, Robin Lopez played like 16 or 17 minutes against Phoenix on Tuesday on national TV. I think John Horst looked at that and said, I think we just have to take this guy away from him. Otherwise, he's going to play him. They trade Robin Lopez to Sacramento, who immediately wave him, and the Bucks got a little bit of cash coming back. What was funny last night at this Timberwolves-Bucks game at Fiserv Forum was Robin, of course, finding out he was traded in the afternoon, he's still with the team. So he got himself a seat in the front row, and he was reading Oprah's Book Club. I don't know what he was reading. Goosebumps, Say Cheese and Die Part 5. He was reading 
a book the entire game yesterday in the front row. Every time the camera panned past him, you could see he was a couple of pages further in the book. And I think he was really reading. I don't think this was for show. I don't think this was something that he wanted to get on Twitter. Maybe he probably did. But I think he was actually reading that book the entire time that he was in the front row of the game last night. They should just make that a thing for the rest of the year. I doubt anybody's going to sign him for the remainder of the year. That could just be the Robin Lopez book club. That could just be a thing for every home game now. And even every road game, too. Just let him travel with the team, too. Those were the two moves they made. I would say they're more fringe moves. The Beverly move, perhaps a little bit more than that. We'll see how he gets along with his teammates. That's one thing about bringing a big personality in. How is he going to fit with Giannis, and how is he going to fit with Dame? Now, for those that don't know NBA drama behind the scenes, Beverly and Dame, when Beverly was in L.A. with the Clippers and Dame was still in Portland, they would play a lot, four times a year. And those two do not like each other, to the point where in early 2023, so we're only talking a year and change ago, They were jawing at each other in a Clippers-Trailblazers game when Dame was on the free throw line, and Beverly tweeted something about it, and then Dame chirped him back, calling him something that I don't even know if I can say, so I'm not going to say it. (laughs) I don't know. It's some kind kind of insult. I know that. I'm afraid to say it, though, and I don't want to Google it. So they don't like each other, and Patrick Beverly was actually recording a podcast when this news broke, so you get sort of live reaction to him being traded in Milwaukee. Malik Beasley, who played with Beverly in Minnesota, immediately called Beverly, and you can tell on the conversation, Beverly said something to the effect of, yeah, i got to repair my relationship with Dame. I'm going to have to go back. I'm going to have to walk some of that back now that we're teammates. Well, Beverly was in that moment, too, talking about, now I get a chance to win a championship. And in Philly, he probably had that chance at the beginning of the year, but now with Embiid's injury, doesn't look like it. Now he has a chance to win a title at 35 years old. He's made a lot of deep playoff runs. He's got a lot of good playoff experience, too. You like that as well as he comes over to the Bucs. We'll see if he's on the floor tonight. He was not last night. Last night's game was a mess. You expected it would be, given the trade deadline, given the injuries now. Middleton, we don't have a timeline with that turned ankle against Phoenix on Tuesday. That felt like... It's like Christian Watson. When Watson went down against the Chiefs earlier this year, I texted a buddy and said, that's four to six. As soon as he went down with that hamstring, and it was. I think it was six weeks. That ankle roll that Middleton suffered on Tuesday when he stepped on Durant's foot. If only Durant's foot was a half size smaller, right? Am I right or am I right? When you saw the way his ankle turned, even though he played two or three minutes after that, and because it's Middleton, you just got the feeling, oh boy, this is going to be a two to four week injury. I would think we are not going to see Middleton until after the All-Star break. The All-Star game is next weekend, and that might even be a best-case scenario. But last night, you don't have Middleton. You don't have Dame, who turned his ankle, apparently, in the victory against Dallas, where he was phenomenal in that game, and then he tried to gut one out against Utah. was not good in that game. He sat out Tuesday in Phoenix. He sat out last night as well. So you go into a game against this Timberwolves team, which all of a sudden is a top-tier team in the West, as Anthony Edwards has now ascended to superstar status, and Carl Anthony Towns has taken on the 1B or number 2 on a championship-caliber team. He's taken on that role graciously, and they've got a, a team loaded with talent. They were tied for first in the Western Conference entering play last night. So you've got a talented, healthy team You've got a Bucks team that made a trade. Beverly wasn't available. They traded campaign to get Beverly. I don't think they missed much there. I kind of like campaign, but he gave you a little offensively, gave you almost nothing defensively. It's a net gain by trading Beverly for campaign as well. And a second round pick. You always got to throw those second round picks in there. I'm telling you, if you look around, if I just look under my prop bet sheet here, I think I got a second round pick sitting right under there. They traded campaign and a second round pick for Beverly. 
But for last night's purposes, Beverly couldn't be there, obviously. And now you're down another player because campaign can't play for you because you just traded him, even though he's probably in the arena reading a book in the back of the arena, whereas Robin was in the front row. Robin was traded. You can't use him. They only had nine guys, I think, available, and two of your starting five are out. Brooke Lopez did join the team again. It just was an unfavorable matchup. They hung in there. They were down 10 at halftime. Early third quarter, though, the Timberwolves cranked it up, and you could tell that they were going to win that game going away. Bright spot last night, A.J. Green. He continues to be a bright spot. We said this either on the Monday podcast or the Friday podcast last week or the Monday podcast last week. I am ready for A.J. Green to get all of the pack Connaughton minutes. Even though Connaughton played pretty good last night, he had nine assists on four of six shooting. He did help them out last night. They keep Connaughton and Bobby, and we thought maybe both of those guys were going to be on the trade block at the deadline. Still, though, I think A.J. Green is just a better player than Pat Connaughton at this stage. And you could make a case if A.J. Green continues to play the way that he played last night. I don't know that you can expect him to shoot the way he shot last night. He was 8 of 10 from the field and 7 of 8, I think, from beyond the arc. He was just filling it up in the second half, especially in the fourth quarter. Career-high 27 points. He's not a bad defender either. One of the knocks on him, he was undrafted, but one of the knocks on him coming out of Northern Iowa was that, yes, he can fill it up, he can hit shots. Whether he can hit them at the NBA level, I guess we'll see, and he has now proven that. But if you're looking at the scouting report the year he came out, yeah, he can shoot, he can score a little bit. We'll see if he can do it at the NBA level, but he cannot defend at the NBA level. He has gotten to be a pretty good defender, and he was matched up. They had a little bit of his own defense working last night, but he was matched up some of that night on Anthony Edwards and some of the premier players from Minnesota, and he moves laterally pretty well. I think you've got to give him some of those Pat Connaughton minutes at this point with the display he put on last night. We'll see if they play him more tonight and if he continues to get more minutes. Of all the young guys on this team, though, of the Andre Jackson Jr., the rookie this year, and Marjan, who was the first-round pick last year, A.J. Green seems to be the best up-and-coming prospect they have. Crowd was going nuts for him, too, as he was hitting three after three after three. There were legitimate A.J. Green. Those chants were happening at five-serve for him. And on the final possession... He had just hit a three to give himself 27 points. Well, you're one three away from 30, obviously. Not a just not to deflex the mental math on you there. They wanted him to shoot. It was five seconds left, and the Bucks could have dribbled it out. And they were saying, "Get him the ball! Get him the ball! And let him shoot!" He did not shoot. What a night though for AJ Green. To me, he continues to move himself into the conversation as being a bigger rotational piece, especially as it relates to Connaughton's minutes. And I saw a lot of people on Twitter. Now, Twitter is not where you go for measured reaction. But there were plenty of people on Twitter saying, hey, should he be getting Malik Beasley's minutes? Malik Beasley's had a pretty good year. He is not a good defender. He's trying hard. He's not a good defender. We knew that about him coming to Milwaukee in the offseason. His shooting last night was horrific. That's another problem with last night. You had no Dame. You had no Middleton. And then Malik Beasley was something like 1 for 13 and 0 for 8 from beyond the arc. You're down two starters, but you're really down three with that shooting effort from Malik Beasley. Up until the last week, though, Beasley was shooting 48% or 46% from beyond the arc, second or third best in the league. But if A.J. Green's going to give you similar shooting, and he is a better defender than Malik right now, I could see in a month or a month and a half, if A.J. continues to play better and continues to get more minutes, could you have that kind of a talk where he takes a starting five spot? Seems crazy, but with what we've seen and the struggles this team has had defensively, I don't know. If he continues to play well, why not give him more minutes? With that loss, the Bucks fall to 33-19. and 19. The rigorous schedule continues after tonight. Now, you have to win tonight. They are 1-5 and five in the Doc era. I do think they've looked better. This is sort of the opposite of the Adrian Griffin situation where the Bucs were winning games with Adrian Griffin, but 
You didn't think they looked good. Remember we talked about that when Griffin was fired? Even after some of those wins, you thought, God, that didn't feel good. Well, the opposite is kind of happening with Doc Rivers. I just write last night's off. You're playing a great team and you're down two starters and your third starter has an awful night. That was a game you were not going to win given the circumstances going in. That was a scheduled loss with everything happening that day. But if you take the five previous games, yes, the Bucks were 1-4 in those games, but the defense looked better. There was more cohesion, it would appear. It is. It's the opposite of the Adrian Griffin effect. Bucks were winning games under Griffin, but I didn't feel good about it. Bucks are losing games under Doc Rivers, but I do feel better about them as we move forward and get closer to the end of the year and get closer to playoff time. Tonight's one you've got to have, though. I don't know if Dame's playing. I would not bet any money that Middleton's playing. Maybe Dame is out there. Even if Dame's not playing... Even if you're down Dame and Middleton again tonight, you must beat a 10-win Hornets team at home. And as we've been over, when you look at this schedule moving forward, there are maybe of the remaining, oh, God. See, now I talk trash about my mental math, and now <laughs> and now I put myself in a bind. 33, so 43, 52, 30 games left. There are 30 games left. You probably have four or five games left of the 30, like tonight, where you're taking on a really bad team, and this is a game you absolutely have to mark as a win. If this is a loss, then the Twitter pitchforks are going to be out for Doc Rivers like you wouldn't believe. I don't care what the injury situation is. I assume Beverly can be in Milwaukee for tonight's game, so you at least have that extra body on the bench. You cannot lose to a 10-win Hornets team tonight. It is a 7 o'clock tip time. And then they have off the rest of the weekend. Then they'll take on, again, the defending champion Denver Nuggets. I told you, this schedule's awful. They take on the Nuggets on Monday. They've got four games until the All-Star break. It just feels like Doc needs to get to the All-Star break, get a win tonight, and then whatever happens with what else do they have. They've got Denver, and they've got another tough game after Denver on Monday. They've got Miami. We all know how that goes on Thursday. That's on national TV, I think. And then you've got, I don't know, check that. You've got Denver and Miami back-to-back Monday, Tuesday. Woof. And then you're at Memphis on Thursday. That is on TNT. And then you get the All-Star break. So you get eight days off. Giannis won't, but you get eight days off. Or Dame, I guess. You get eight days off after that. Try to get yourself healthy for a matchup at Minnesota on ESPN when you come back on Friday, February 23rd. But you're not going to have a lot of games like this, like tonight's game. You absolutely have to get a win tonight. Now, I do want to throw out there, I put a little two bets down last night. After the trade deadline was wrapped up, I put two futures bets down. I have a bet on the Bucks. I did this before the game against Minnesota. Now, I should have probably waited until after it because you just sort of knew it was going to be a loss. And if I would have waited until today, the odds might have been even better because the Bucks lost and the Cavaliers won last night. I bet I could have gotten even better odds. Before the game, though... The Bucks were plus 110 to win the Central, and the Cavaliers are now the favorites to win the Central at minus 135. I just couldn't pass up Giannis in his prime with Dame getting plus odds to win the division. I understand the Cavaliers have been scorching hot, and the Bucks have been a mess and injury-plagued. I just couldn't pass up those odds. The chances of the Bucks going on a 10-game winning streak at some point, even with the schedule, given how many elite players they have on this team. I don't know. I guess you're sort of betting on that. The Cavaliers will cool off. They've won eight in a row. After last night's games, though, the Cavaliers are in that two spot at 34 and 16. The Bucks are 33 and 19. So three worse in the loss column. Yeah, I would have gotten better odds today. 
I do have a future now, though, on the Bucks to win the Central at plus 110. I also put a bet down on the Warriors to make the playoffs. They seem to be getting hot. I think we are past the point of the Warriors being legitimate title contenders, but I do not think we're past the point of the Warriors being a team that can get a seed in the playoffs and maybe make some noise in the first round. Right now, they are on the outside of the top 10. The play-in tournament does not count for a for a future bet on a team to make the playoffs in the NBA. They have to get to the actual playoffs. The play-in tournament does not count. They right now are tied with Utah for the number 10 spot. I just like the way they're trending. I don't I, I like if you're gonna give me Steph Curry, and I know Clay Thompson isn't the Clay Thompson he used to be, and Draymond's not the Draymond he used to be. They do have Kaminga coming on though. If you're going to give me plus 250, which is what I got them at, plus 250 just to make the playoffs as a 7 or an 8 seed, I'm taking that. So we have two future NBA bets, plus 110 bucks to win the Central, plus 250 the Warriors to make the playoffs. Bucks back on the floor, 7 o'clock tip time tonight. Did I get all the injury stuff? Trade deadline, Doc Rivers, injury, Lopez reading. Yeah, we got it all. We'll do college hoops, then we'll do some Brewer talk, and then we'll get to the Chiefs and Niners and all the prop bets and all that kind of stuff. Badgers, just a woof. Buzz your girlfriend, woof. That was a tough one in Michigan on Wednesday. Michigan dead last place. Jawan Howard talks of him being fired. They had lost 10 of their last 11. College hoops, though, is the ultimate crapshoot. And just watching the first five minutes of that game, you got a bad feeling about how the Badgers looked and how Michigan looked. The Badgers are turning the ball over. They're missing shots. Michigan's knocking down shots. It's a half-empty arena. You just don't want to give a team that has had the kind of year Michigan has had, you do not want to give them any kind of hope, and you just got the feeling in the first five to seven minutes, if you don't seize control of this game, it's going to be tough to get a win. I don't care how bad the team is, on the road, conference matchup, and that's what happened. Badgers just couldn't seem to get in front, couldn't get shots to go consistently, turn the ball over a ton. It was, again, a nightmare from beyond the arc. It was a little better than Sunday against Purdue. They were 3 of 19 from beyond the arc against Purdue on Sunday. They were 5 of 19 on Wednesday. But you're not going to beat a lot of teams. I don't care how bad the teams are. What was Michigan's record? 7 and 15 going into last night, 2 and 9 in Big Ten play. But if you go 5 of 19 from beyond the arc and turn the ball over 14 times at the Division One level, I don't care who you're playing. You're not going to beat a lot of teams putting those numbers up. I do wonder with this Badger team, if we're at a point where A.J. Storr, for as good as he has been, this is his first year, really, as a full-time starter. He is essentially a redshirt freshman. I know we've talked about how good he's been, how athletic he is, how he gives them that added layer, and he does do all of that. But this is not a junior we're talking about or a senior, and they have been leaning on him heavily offensively for the duration of the year. I wonder if he's running out of gas a little bit. Are we left of the slash with A.J. Store? Hopefully not. Hopefully he can find something or get a refill before we get to the Big Ten tournament and the NCAA tournament. It just feels like his legs are a little heavy. He's making poorer decisions and a lot of turnovers for A.J. Store. Chucky didn't have a good game either. The middle was okay. Trevor Wall was all right. Steven Crowell needs to be better. He had kind of a rough game too. And you lose to a bad team, 72-68. Now you've lost three in a row. They were ranked number six in the country. Now you have losses at Nebraska, at home against the number two team in the country, Purdue, and at Michigan. You certainly can live with losing at Nebraska, even though you had a 19-point lead and blew it. That's a team that's a good team, and they don't lose at home. You can certainly live with losing to the number two team in the country, the team that is likely to be the number one overall seed come NCAA tournament time. You can live with that. You were there the whole game. You hit a few more shots, you probably win. Wednesday's a game that's tough to live with when you lose to a team that has been as bad as Michigan has been. 
The fire guard crew was out in full force on Wednesday. We talked about that on Monday or Friday last week. There's just a segment of this Badger fandom that has never liked the hiring of Greg Gard and look for any opportunity to say fire guard. They were out in mass. It was hard to argue with them on Wednesday, even though I don't I don't buy into that. I just think when you lose a game like that, okay, let them have their day. Let the fire guard crew enjoy their night, and I'm sure they did. You saw them saying this team is one and done. The most popular thing I saw said about guard and this team coming out of Wednesday from the frustration on Twitter was, this team will be one and done, dot, 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 if they even make the tournament. All right, let's all calm down. <laughs> let's all take a breath. This team is 16-7. and seven. They are 8-4 and four in the Big Ten. They're going to win 20 games. They're not going to be a one or a two seed like we were kind of hoping for before that Nebraska game or a one or a two or a three seed. We're probably at this point, even if you won out, I think you're probably looking at best at a four seed, but you're probably going to be in that six to eight range with the way things are breaking right now. This team is going to the NCAA tournament. If this team does not go to the NCAA tournament, I will cut the hat that I'm wearing on my head up and I will eat it during a podcast. This team is going to the NCAA tournament, all right? But you just knew that fire guard crew and that emotional state getting all revved up. They were making all kinds of weird statements on Wednesday. Can the Badgers get back on the right track against Rutgers? After you lose to Michigan, I don't know that you feel confident right now against anybody. I guess they went right to, where is it, East Rutherford? I guess they went right there from Michigan on Wednesday without going back to Madison. So they've been a team. Greg Gard said in his post game, well, no matter what happens, we're going to be together here for the next 72 hours. They have an 11 a.m. tip time at Rutgers. I don't have a line on that yet. Boy, I'll tell you what, though. If the Badgers are minus one or minus one and a half, I may lay some wood on that. They're going to win eventually, right? They're going to win a game eventually. Marquette on National Marquette Day. They are at home after a week off against Rick Pitino and St. John's. Number seven team in the country. Six-game winning streak. But St. John's, pretty good team. Marquette beat St. John's in Madison Square Garden about a week or two ago. See if they can keep things rolling and get their seventh straight win. That is an evening tip time, I'm pretty sure. Typically, Marquette always plays in the early afternoon or late morning on Saturdays if they're home. But with National Marquette Day, yeah, it's a 5 o'clock. Badgers are at Rutgers, 11 a.m. on Big Ten Network. St. John's is at Marquette at 5 p.m. That is on FS1. Let's talk about the Brewers before we get to prop bets. They made another move. They did reinvest the Corbin money. They were going to spend $15 million on Corbin this year. They traded Corbin. They then spent $7 million on Jacob Junis and spent $7 million on Gary Sanchez this week. So they did reinvest. They did reinvest that capital. Let's talk about Jacob Junis real quickly. I like it. It's a good signing. This is a very Brewer signing. You get a pitcher coming off of a career year in San Francisco, had a career best 3.87 ERA, spells his name with a K and not a C, which I like as a pitcher. And he's just been a swing guy most of his career. You can use him out of the bullpen. You can use him in high leverage innings out of the bullpen. Or you can use him as a starter. He made 40 appearances for the Giants last year. Four of those were starts. He had the Brewer offense last year, which I don't know if you're saying much there. But he had the Brewer offense mesmerized early in the year when he pitched against them at AmFam Field. But he just fits that Brewer mold of, we could use him as a fourth or fifth starter. We could use him as a long guy in relief for a while if we wanted to. You could use him in the sixth or seventh or maybe even eighth inning if you've got guys that need a day. He can be used in a lot of different ways. Another thing you like about Jacob Junis is his velocity was up last year. He was normally in the 92-mile-per-hour range with his fastball last year, just short of 94. I don't know what he discovered, but discovered something. And then his slider was up about a mile and a half or two miles per hour as well. That maybe led to him having a career year. 
And you get him on a pretty low-risk, one-year, $7 million deal and a guy you can use in a variety of ways. The rotation is thin now without Corbin, as we've been over. Maybe they fixed that, though, before pitchers and catchers report. We'll get to some reckless speculation coming up. But with where you're at right now, where Peralta and Miley are your one-two, and Colin Ray is your three. I don't mean to laugh every time I say that, but it just does not make me feel great about the rotation heading into the year. Colin Ray is your three. And then you've got a bunch of guys. You've got Joe Ross, who they signed, hasn't pitched in Major League Baseball in a couple of years, but maybe he finds something in the Brewer pitching lab. You've got Gosser in the minor leagues. You've got Mizorowski. Not sure it's his time yet. He is one of the top-rated pitching prospects in baseball. Probably feels like he needs another year of seasoning in the minor leagues, but maybe a guy you could see toward the end of the year. Gosser, to me, is the most likely minor league guy that will come up. You've got Carlos Rodriguez, another minor league guy who has a lot of potential. But now you have a guy in Junis who you can use in a variety of ways. A Swiss Army knife, if you will. They sign him early in the week, and then they make a move for Gary Sanchez. This was a bit more surprising. That news came down on Wednesday, I want to say. He also gets a one-year, $7 million deal. Gary Sanchez in 2016, from 2016 to 2019, He was a cog in the middle of a very good Yankee lineup, an impressive offense. He was right in the middle of that, hitting 30 home runs, knocking in 80 or 90 runs. He was a two-time All-Star. He was an All-Star in 2017 and 2019. He got MVP votes in 2017. That was the level he was at. He is not that caliber anymore. He is 31, I think 32 years old. He's bounced around a bit since leaving New York after the pandemic-shortened year in 2020. Spent some time in Minnesota. He started last year in New York with the Mets. They cut him after a couple of days. He was on waivers. The Giants picked him up. They cut him. He was on waivers again. And then the Padres picked him up. He experienced a bit of a renaissance in San Diego. In 75 games, he hit 19 home runs, which is a great ratio. He only hit 217, so I know we're already going to get the older baseball fans saying, "Oh, fit right in. He's going to fit right. He's going to fit right in with this Brewer lineup." You in the year 2024, pointing to a batting average, and I said this in the blog, pointing it to the batting average as one of the sole ways to evaluate a baseball player offensively is like claiming the Earth is flat. We have passed that. I know it's still the stat you see on the Bally Sports graphics or the Fox graphics. I know it's still something that they put on the now, what is it, 12,000-square-foot Jumbotron or video board at AmFam Field. The best way to evaluate a player and their offensive prowess is OPS. OPS is slugging percentage combined with on-base percentage. So you're getting a feel for how often they get on base, whether it's walks or hit by a pitch or getting a hit, and then the slugging component tells you if they're getting singles or doubles or triples or home runs. That's the weirdest thing about batting average. Every hit's the same. But they're not, right? We can all agree that if you hit a home run as opposed to a Texas League single, that's more val- the home run is more valuable, right, for the most part, nine times out of ten. Get my Tim Kirkjian on in here. The home run means more. The double means more. The triple means more. Every hit is a hit in batting average. It's just a hit. It's hits versus at-bats. It doesn't matter if it's a single, a bunt single, a home run. That's why batting average is more and more going by the wayside as a way to say, hey, this guy's a good offensive player. This guy can hit. Gary Sanchez had a 790 OPS last year. That would have been, and again, I know it's last year's offense, that would have been third best on the Brewers in 2023. And again, 19 home runs in 75 games. If he can come close to that, if he can get in the 750 to 775 OPS range, this is going to be a good get. He is going to be a backup catcher to William Contreras, which to me means if Contreras stays on the path that he's on, he was the silver slugger last year as a catcher. 
And if Sanchez can give you something close to what he gave San Diego last year, you now have the best offensive catching combo in Major League Baseball. He also is a guy you can use in different spots. You can use Gary Sanchez as a DH, and if you have him catching, you can use Contreras as a DH. There's some versatility there. I think you could probably use Gary Sanchez at first base if Reese Hoskins is hurt or needs a day off or whatever. You hope Reese Hoskins is your guy at first base for 140 or 145 games, but you could probably sprinkle in Sanchez there as well. It's a nice get, and I got to say, this lineup right now, if everything stays the way it is, Looks a lot better to me than last year's lineup. You've got Yelly, and assuming you keep Adamas, you've got Yelly and Adamas and Hoskins at the top. Contreras probably batting cleanup. Sanchez probably in there five or six. You've got Freelick and you've got Trurio, I assume, is going to make the opening day roster. Their one through five or one through six looks a lot better than it did last year. How they figure out the rest of the outfield and will Mitchell be on the opening day roster or will Weimer be on the opening day roster? How does that all pan out? I'm not sure. But the everyday lineup now, when you start to add the pop of Sanchez and you hope Contreras keeps going forward, you've added Reese Hoskins, a legitimate middle-of-the-order bat. I don't mind that one through five, one through six. Now it's the pitching staff, which was your strength for a while, that gives me a little bit of concern, which leads me to my next point. You want to take a walk with me? Let's take a walk. We should do a segment. We're going to do a segment along with Take It From Me, a podcaster. We're going to do a segment where I say something insane, but we're going to preface it with saying, let's take a walk. Let's take a walk. Gary Sanchez, when he got to San Diego last year, he became the personal catcher for Blake Snell. Blake Snell won a Cy Young in Tampa in 2018 and is right now the reigning National League Cy Young Award winner. He is a two-time Cy Young Award winner. Before Gary Sanchez got to San Diego last year, Snell was having a pretty blah year, ERA in the upper fours. He became Snell's personal catcher, and Snell caught fire. Sub-2 ERA the rest of the way, and he wins the Cy Young, his second Cy Young. And Blake Snell, at the end of the year, gave a lot of credit to Gary Sanchez, his personal catcher, for calling pitches, for being in lockstep with him in terms of pitch selection and location, and basically said working with him is one of the reasons I was able to have the year that I had and and went on to win my second Cy Young. Popular sentiment among baseball bloggers or insiders in the offseason was that whoever signed Blake Snell would probably just sign Gary Sanchez so he would be able to take his personal catcher wherever he's going. Well, Gary Sanchez right now is in a Milwaukee Brewer jersey, and Blake Snell is still a free agent. And pitchers and catchers report in one week, one week from today or less than one week from today. Is it imperative for Blake Snell, a guy with his pedigree and his resume, to be in camp when pitchers and catchers report when he could probably get there at the end of February or early March and be just fine for opening day? No. I would assume, however, take it from me, a podcaster, that a top-caliber starting pitcher in Major League Baseball would prefer to be in camp earlier than later. So that leads me to believe that Blake Snell is going to sign a deal somewhere in the next week or two. If Mark Atanasio, where's that spite money, Mark? If Mark Atanasio was really going to go spite mode here, I think he could sign Blake Snell, and I don't think it would be as expensive in terms of length of contract than it would have been for Corbin. Corbin would have made $15 million this year, and then with Scott Boris as his agent, we pretty much know that Corbin's looking for a five, six, seven-year deal in the $200-plus million range once this season's over. And he may even sign that in Baltimore before the year even begins with their new ownership group and all the money that they are putting into the franchise. 
That's what Corbin was looking for. Blake Snell is a year or two older. I think Blake Snell's 31 or 32 years old. You would still have to pay Blake Snell 30-plus million a year, probably 35 million a year, but... I do think you could get Blake Snell on a two- or three-year deal as opposed to a five- or six-year deal. Does that make it more palatable for a small market team? I think it does because even if it doesn't work out then, it's not like you're locked in to a seven-year deal with this commodity that has fallen by the wayside. If it doesn't work out, you're only on the hook for a year or two, and you could probably trade him right away next year. Because of his age, and he has bounced around a little bit, Maybe you could get him on a three-year, $110 million deal. Now, that's easy for me to say. It's not my money. But if we wanted Mark to go full spite mode here, you got his personal catcher, and you've got this two-time Cy Young Award winner just floating out there in the breeze like a Pokemon. Just go get him. Go get him. Then, if you look at that lineup one through five or six, and then you look at the rotation, and it's Blake Snell at the top, and Peralta as your two, and Miley as your three, and Colin Ray as your four. I'm not laughing now. That actually fills out really nicely, and you get the kind of caliber pitcher that you would have had with Corbin at the top of the roster. Do I think this is really going to happen? Unfortunately, I do. (laughs) Unfortunately for me, I've convinced myself this is going to happen. Realistically, highest percentage chance you would put on Blake Snell being the starting pitcher on opening day for the Brewers, 2%, 5% at the highest. It just kind of makes sense, though, right? If you have some money to burn... Not that they do, but if you did and you wanted to sign a high-caliber pitcher, you just got his personal catcher, you can get him on a shorter-term deal maybe than some of the other guys out there or Corbin if you would have stayed in-house. It just seems to make sense to me. We'll see if anything like that happens. Let's just throw that rumor out there, though. Uh, The Brewers do sign Junis and Sanchez this week to bolster their staff and to bolster the everyday lineup, which is looking not awful right now. All right, let's get to some picks. Cue the music. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to one on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. Here we go, baby. It is time. It is time for the Super Bowl, the Superb. We will be spending this Sunday evening at our neighbor Sean's Superb Owl Party. We are ready for the Superb Owl Party. We hope the owl has a good disposition. And this leads to the greatest prop bet day of any sporting day. March Madness is the best 48 hours in gambling, or more than that. It's 96 hours in gambling the first weekend of March Madness. This single day, though, in terms of prop bets are the best. I was joking off the top. We're not going to go through all 62. Let's start, though, with the actual game itself. We are going to do the two-team teaser. And even though every fiber of my being thinks the under on the two-team tease is the better bet, now remember, teasers, you add six or seven points to whatever side of the spread. You either add six or seven points to the Chiefs' side, six or seven points to the Niners' side, and then six or seven points to the over or under. We are going to take the Chiefs at plus nine. That is already written in stone. I believe this game will be close. Of course we could be wrong. I believe this game is going to be within four points either way. So I feel very comfortable about Patrick Mahomes and a team that's been to the Super Bowl four times and won it twice. I feel comfortable that they are going to be within 10 points. We will take the Chiefs plus nine. The other part of this equation is the over-under. Do we feel more comfortable on the over at 40 and a half or the under at 54 and a half? 54 and a half is a lot of points. And when you look at what I think this game script is going to be, if you've watched the Chiefs this year, 
they are not an explosive offense anymore. They are a grinder offense. They are a team that if they score a field goal or touchdown, it's an 8, 9, 10 play drive that eats up six plus minutes. And the Niners are kind of that way too. They have more explosive weapons with Debo and with McCaffrey and guys like that and Ayuk and Kittle to an extent. Certainly McCaffrey and Debo though, those guys are walking touchdowns. They could get you to an 80-yard or a 70-yard touchdown in a blink. For the most part, though, the Niners have been a more methodical offense this year as well. You factor in the big stage of the Super Bowl and the likelihood of some nerves on the Niners' side more so than the Chiefs' side, and maybe you get a couple punts early. I just think the game script and the way these two teams move is going to lead to a 20-17, kind of game, which would be way under on 54. However, <laughs> I just I can't do it, even though... It's the more logical of the two plays. That means I am spending Super Bowl Sunday rooting for punts. And as an American, I simply cannot do that. I cannot bring myself to do that. I can't bring myself to seeing a Niner punter or a Chiefs punter. We don't know their names. I can't bring myself to finding joy in a punter being on the field. No offense intended. We are taking the over on 40 and a half. I can see this game being a 17-14 game. I can see this game being a 21-17 game. More so than I can see it being a 35-27 to kind of game. But we have to root for points. 21-20 gets it done. 24-21, somewhere in there. We will take the Chiefs plus 9 and the over on 40 and a half. And that is on the official script. We come into today in the NFL season, college football season, with a 51-37-5 and record. Even though we tailed off toward the end of the year a bit, I put that record, and it's legit. You can go back and listen to every podcast. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Maybe someone in Iowa. You can go back and listen to every podcast, add them all up, go back and look at the results. That's a legit record. I put that record against any of the gambling podcasts out there that are gambling on college football in the NFL. 51-37-5. That's the official pick. It pays basically one-to-one, minus 105 or minus 110. Chiefs plus nine over on 40 and a half. Now let's break down some of the prop bets, shall we? It starts with the anthem, my favorite prop bet of the year. Reba is singing the anthem. I should have put money on this early in the week. I don't know why I didn't because the number has gone up. Every version of the Reba anthem I can find, she is in the 130 to 131 range. So that's pretty quick. We did a trivia question on B93 this morning. If you averaged all of the anthems in all of the previous 57 Super Bowls, what is the anthem average? And the average is 115 seconds, which is a pretty long anthem. That is 155. And as we discussed, if you just play it, if you're just in a band and you play it, it should take about 85 to 90 seconds, about a minute 25, a minute and a half. So that's pretty high at 115 seconds at a minute 55. That's the average. Reba, when she's done it, has pretty consistently been 130, 131. This line opened at 86 seconds, a minute 26. And given that she's typically right at 130, 131, and then you factor in it's the Super Bowl, so is there a greater chance she'll stretch a note or do something she doesn't normally do that makes it a little bit longer? I should have hopped on the over at that point. And now a lot of people have hopped on the over and the number has gone up to 89 seconds. So now we're really pushing up against that 130-131 mark where you're going to have your stopwatch out and it's going to be getting damn close to wherever that where, where 129 would be. I'm still taking the over. 
She's been very consistent, 130-131. There's not a lot of variance there in any Reba anthem I can find. I've been in the lab. I've gone through them all. She pretty much hits that number on the dot. Certainly less room for error now than there would have been had I laid that bet on Monday. There's just something about laying the bet on Monday. It's like seeing a spread you like in the NFL on Monday morning and thinking, am I really going to bet on a Sunday game on a Monday? Kind of had that feel to it. But I should have. If you see a line you like, take the line you like. 89 seconds, we are on the over on the Reba National Anthem. The second most fun thing to gamble on, and I've been known to do this outside the Super Bowl as well, we have the coin flip heads or tails. Niles, you're actually going to flip a coin. The decision cannot be made that simply. Oh, it's not going to be that simple. The chances of Niles catching that quarter are about the same as you. Enough, Dad! I love it. We are going tails, of course. Tails never fails, even though it statistically does 50.5% of the time. We are going tails on that. There are a couple of different bets this year that I like that I have not seen before. I am going to bet on Travis Kelsey catching every target. That is paying 17, or no, that one's paying 13 to 1, plus 1,300. Travis Kelsey had 11 catches in the AFC championship game, and he had 11 targets. I did not go back and do the research to see how rare that is. Obviously, based on the odds at plus 1,300, it is a rarity for a wide receiver or a tight end or a running back that gets targeted often to catch every target that comes their way. I, with those odds, though, at plus 1,300, with the experience of Kelsey and the experience of Mahomes, especially in these games, and the accuracy between those two, I think it's worth the risk to throw 100 bucks on that at plus 1,300, Travis Kelsey to catch every target thrown his way. Travis Kelsey is 17-1 to to win the MVP. I do not believe the NFL is rigged. I want to throw that out there, although you're seeing a lot of that right now. And if the Chiefs win, and I think they're going to, if the Chiefs win and you get the Taylor celebration and the whole subplot with that, you're going to read a lot of hashtag rigged. Just prepare yourself now. There's going to be a lot of rigged conversation happening coming out of that. I do think, though, that if the Chiefs win, which I think they're going to, and if Travis Kelsey has a good game, they're going to give it to him for that subplot. I do believe that. I don't believe the game itself is rigged. But if the Chiefs win and Kelsey has a good game and you have Mahomes having a good game too or Pacheco has a good game, you know what I mean? If everything is equal, the Chiefs win the game and the voters are saying, yeah, Mahomes had a pretty good game, Kelsey had a pretty good game, Pacheco had a pretty good game, Rice had a pretty good game, MVS maybe had a pretty good game. I think if all things are equal, they give it to Kelsey for that storyline because he is the most popular name out there right now. And it's 17-1 to 1 at plus 1,700. More often than not, the MVP is almost always a quarterback. I'm just saying, if Kelsey goes out there and has a two-touchdown game, an eight-catch, 100-yard, two-touchdown game, and they win – He is going to win the MVP because his name and Taylor's name, and that's the biggest little side story out there right now, the biggest little, like Reno, like Reno, Nevada. It is the biggest side story, as annoying as some people are about it or as agitated as some people are about hearing about it and seeing Taylor and all that nonsense, and we've been over my take on that. The the likelihood of Kelsey has a good game and the Chiefs win that he wins the MVP, I think they're pretty good. And at plus $1,700 to win $1,700 to bet $100, we'll take that. I am going purple for Gatorade. The logo of the Super Bowl is purple. We're going purple for Gatorade. First Usher song for the halftime show. He's not going to go, yeah, right? Because the opportunity for collaboration is in there for, yeah, that's the signature song. That's the one that people my age heard a million times in dirty basements sipping on a natty ice around a keg. 
Well, we heard it over and over and over again. That's a feature. He'll do that in the middle of the set. Here are the other options, and there are a million. The options are, yeah, my boo, you got it bad, which goes back in the day a little bit for Usher. Loving this club. You don't have to call. You remind me, I think, would have a chance. That's another early hit for him. My way is, eh, I don't even think he's going to play that. Confessions is too much of a downer. DJ caught us falling in love. That might be on the short list. Oh, my God. I think OMG. I think that's on the short list. Caught up in I Need a Girl. To me, this comes down to two. Oh, my God. We're falling in love. And then some words I don't know. And DJ got us falling in love. Those are the two to me that make the most sense. They've got energy. They're catchy. They're known commodities. I'm going to go with Oh, My God. OMG as the opening song for Usher at plus 230. What did I say? Purple for the Super Bowl. Oh, who will the MVP mention in his interview? Now, if Travis Kelsey wins, <laughs> Taylor is not a specific option. And I don't have a lot of Taylor prop bets, ultimately. There is a prop bet out there. Will Travis Kelsey propose to Taylor at the end of this game? And obviously, no is the overwhelming favorite there. If Kelsey does win the MVP, my options are teammates, God, city, coach, family, which I guess maybe you throw Taylor in, owner, or none of the above. So none of the above would be Taylor, I would think. I went with teammates. I'm going thanking my team, thanking my teammates. I think that's what we'd go with for the Super Bowl MVP, the first thing that is thanked in the postgame celebration. And then my favorite prop bet that I've never seen before that we're going to bet on revolves around the two-minute warning. I've never seen this. You can bet this year, for the first half and the end of the game, will the two-minute warning hit exactly at two minutes? The no is plus 230, which... Again, you know, how much attention do you pay to that? I watch a million college football and NFL games. I don't have a running log of the amount of times it's hit at exactly two minutes. With those odds, obviously, more often than not, it hits right at two minutes. But somebody running a play at 202 and it gets down to 158 or 159, and you've got two chances here. You're at plus 230, and you've got two chances, halftime and the end of the game, I feel like that's going to be an electric moment because you're trying to figure out timeouts and how much time is on the play clock and how much time is left in the game. I think this is going to be an enjoyable slash stressful thing to watch. Will the two-minute warning hit at exactly two minutes? I am going no at plus 230, and you kind of have two chances to win there with halftime and the end of the game. Those are the prop bets. I mean, you could go through literally who wins the game over under is 47 and a half points i don't know that i'd take the over that if i was betting straight up i'd take the under team to score first on this prop bed sheet i pick kansas city what will happen first a Chiefs score a chief's punt i took punt what will happen first niners score niners punt i took niners punt there are so many you can circle on here but those to me were the big ones we are over on the reba anthem we are tails never fails we are purple gatorade we are at least one time the two minute warning not hitting at exactly two minutes Travis Kelsey catching every target thrown his way. Travis Kelsey as the MVP. What else did I have? Purple Gatorade and Oh My God as the opening song for Usher Usher at the halftime show. All right. We'll see how we come back on Monday with the prop bet extravaganza. We'll recap the Super Bowl, talk about the commercials maybe a little bit. Did you see the Paramount Plus commercial? I blogged about that too. The Hey Arnold Paramount Plus commercial is chef's kiss. That is the clubhouse leader right now to me for best ad of the year already. I haven't even seen any of the other ones. I don't know. It's going to be hard to beat that one. You've got Hey Arnold. You've got Patrick Stewart. You've got Creed. You've got a lot of things going on in that commercial. We'll recap it all on Monday morning. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.